Well, hey, Becoming Better listeners, man, we got a really special uh, podcast, bonus podcast for you uh, today that ties perfectly in with our James series, uh, specifically that idea of uh, suffering and trials. And so normally I know it's me, Josh, and Jason and Brendan, but today we actually have some uh, more special guests, we'll say that. And so I know one of you, uh, one of our guests, you guys will know, it's Kenny from our PV camp. Say, hey, Ken, how you doing, man? I'm glad to be here. I'm good. Yeah, we're excited. So, Ken, how about you tell us, maybe give a little introduction of who's joining us today? Okay, well, we can't forget that we have the man in the chair, we, Nate Riveras. That is true. Making the podcast happen and trying Very to true. keep us on task. And then it's a hard we, job, especially with you in the room, brother. Aim, especially with you. Oh, me. <laughs> <laughs> These listeners. That's true. He did say me. he needed to be here because of me. Uh, <laughs> but with us, our guests today are Anthony and Stephanie Nemo. Like Bingo got his Nemo. I was like, appreciate that. Do people Thanks. say Nemo all the time? I said Nemo. Yeah. I thought it was Nemo. I just would like to say that. Okay. So you were, Josh, you were right. Yes. <laughs> you heard so, it here first. Uh, Anthony and Stephanie are part of Quad City. So I, I could do all the introductions, but why don't you guys tell us a little bit about yourself? who you are, so the people listening get to know you, and then we'll get into our podcast. Well, grateful to be here today. Uh, Fun to get to be on a podcast that I listen to weekly. And so thank you so much for this opportunity. And yes, Anthony and Stephanie, we are fairly new to Prescott. Um, We moved here back in August of 22. I just have to say, Nate is thrilled to hear you say you listen to it weekly. Just thought that fired up. Absolutely. I, I, I love it. And uh, so, yeah, moved here. We've been here for a year and a half. Absolutely love it. I grew up down in Phoenix. Stephanie grew up in Cottonwood. And so we have all of her families here. My family's out in California. And, uh, and so we settled here. Absolutely love the church, love the community. And uh, Stephanie and I have five kids. And oldest is 19 off at uh, Liberty University and doing extremely well. And then our youngest is six, and uh, and then we have uh, a, a handful in between. You know, that sounds real familiar. Like our oldest is 18, fixing to go to NAU, and our youngest is eight. So it's that, you have a better of balance spread, I think, than we do. But uh, yeah, five is, that's a lot. A little more yeah. spread out than what we had anticipated, I think. <laughs> right. Now, you guys say you moved here a year and a half ago, but it wasn't like a traditional move from somewhere. Yeah. So Stephanie, maybe tell us what you guys were kind of doing before you landed here in the Prescott area. We were full-time RVing around the country. So we took our kids and crammed them in a fifth wheel and we traveled for a little over two years and it was pretty fantastic. It was a great experience. And you must have, of all the places you've been, you come to Prescott. Yeah. Like yeah. this is the place it's the to the best be. place there is. Well, and and just to to give a little bit of information, I think it's it's pretty cool. We, so as we traveled, we hit 45 states. And one of the questions in the back of our mind is like, where are we settling? And we prayed about it regularly. We'd go one place, like, and we followed good weather. So we were in, you know, Montana, Idaho in the the summer, summer. and it's amazing, you know? And then we're we're in Florida during Christmas. and, And so all of it was great, but we had been praying, Lord, lead us to community, lead us to a place, not only where we have community, but our kids can, mm. can get plugged in and serve. And, uh, and then we started listening to, um, yeah, church here. And mm-hmm. so I don't know if we probably six, six to eight months before we settled here, we started listening online. And, and so when we came, 
yeah, it, we felt like it was already kind of home. And, and so this was a big piece of, because we weren't sure if it was going to be Prescott or Flag or somewhere okay. else, um, but this was like the Lord led us here. Hey, well, you're almost, you have flag weather, right? Being in Walker, you're yes. close to, so you got the great community of Prescott and you get the flag uh, temperament. Yeah, we uh, love, we love yeah. Walker. Yeah, it's, I remember the first Sunday, Jason was like, hey, I'm in a family today. They or like our RV family. And I think they're going to pick to live in Prescott because they were watching online, which is the power to the testament of being online, right? It's great. It gets it out there. But we always say all the time, right? We don't want it to just stay online. Like we want people to come, right? And actually connect with local community. Like that's the hope and the value. And so, but I remember Jason was like, yeah, I met this couple. They're like in their RV, but maybe coming here. And I was like, what? That's so cool. So, and then shortly later met you guys and definitely honored to do though. So, yes. Yeah. And so tell us, there's also a connection. Tell us what you do for a living. Yeah. 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 So I work for an organization called Hope Partners International and we started it uh, just over 10 years ago. And so as we traveled around the country, part of my role is raising awareness and funds for the work that we do internationally. And that work is rescuing children and transforming their lives through acts of compassion in Jesus' name. And the way that we do that is we go into some of the most impoverished places in the world and we establish what we call a hope center. And each hope center looks a little bit different based on what's the need of the area, uh, but they're generally tied to slum areas, high, uh, extreme poverty where families are trying to get by on on less than $2 a day. And uh, and so we established these hope centers. And the first piece is the rescue piece is providing a safe place, meeting their immediate needs, safety, food, care, love. Uh, but then the long-term is that transformation process, which we see education is a key piece of it, but the foundation is obviously the discipleship. Teaching these, these kids about Jesus and allow, allowing them to experience his love and then over time seeing their life transformed, helping them see the vision that God has for them. And, and then education is that piece that allows them to go out and to use those gifts that God's given them to impact their world. You say, uh, in, in, or experiencing his love, and that's through the people, I guess, that come and minister and work through the Hope Centers. Yeah. So where are these Hope Centers? Yeah, so we, uh, we started in Costa Rica. In fact, I'm heading there tomorrow. We have got a grand opening. Our first Hope Center was there just over 10 years ago. We could care for about 450 children, but we kind of just outgrew that. And so um, the mayor worked and was able to give us some land. We built this new facility. Uh, Dr. Tim's coming with me, so I'm super excited to have him on it. But this is a big deal. This is our first ground up Hope Center. We're gonna be able to care for about 900 Wow. children in the area. In addition to the one that's already no, there? the other or? one, yeah, the other one is kind of, we've moved everything out of that. Okay. And we were leasing that and that's get, gone back to the group that we, we were leasing it from. Um, so we're in Costa Rica. And then from there, we, we uh, the, our second one was in India. And, uh, and so we're in Costa Rica, India, Venezuela, Sri Lanka, Romania, um, Kenya. And then actually Stephanie is jumping on a plane on Monday, and she's flying to Uganda mm. um, to check out. There's an opportunity for us there, and uh, and so I'm sitting this one out, and she's heading over there. Okay. Uh, and then, what is our connection? There's yes. a connection with your ministry, and yeah, so really cool because of Excel and our ability to uh, be able to give away a million dollars. We were able this year to bring on Hope Partners um, uh, as a support partner for 2024 and beyond. And me and Anthony have been having a conversation 
about what does it look like to actually take a team from Quad City to one of these places. So hopefully in the next upcoming weeks, months, you're going to be hearing about that. So an opportunity to jump in and go and maybe make a difference with some of these kids. Hey, man, let's go to Costa Rica. Costa Rica, yeah. I think we talked <laughs> We talked India just because you're going to hear why India. It's going to make a lot of sense. But, I mean, Costa Rica is good weather, right? Sure, yes. It ain't I've bad. Heard. And it's closer. It is it's a lot. closer. And it's, it's more comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> we, don't, we don't do the easy things. That's here. right. We, we do hard things here. That's right. That's yeah. Everyone wants to do Costa Rica. Yeah. Sure. They don't want to do Uganda and no. India. Yeah, I'm lucky you. Yeah, lucky yeah. me. Stephanie gets to do the hard yeah, thing. Gets to do the hard thing. But again, it's really, really cool. So we're excited to have, obviously, you guys on as a partner and just the work that you're doing to transform people's lives, um, immediate needs, but also long term, right? Like trying to change these families and these kids for generations to come. And that's what the gospel. And so it makes sense about making disciples. That's what we do as a church. And um, we love to be able to work with relationships. And again, the hope for us also is to be able to actually take trips and engage our people in doing this work. Well, you said these hope centers are taking care of victimized children. And I think of, and here we are, we're in James, taking care of orphans and widows in their distress. Yeah. And it's a bit crass to say, but you know, check the box. Not, But you're doing that and you're developed this organization that help yeah. other people do it and impacting thousands. If You're going to be able to serve 950 kids in Costa Rica. Yeah, so we have, we currently have 11 hope centers in six countries on five continents, we care for just under 2,500 kids a day. Yeah, but like awesome. looking back on this past year, 2023, we we provided over 730,000 meals. We got to see, we got to rescue 244 new children out of poverty and and caring for them now. Yeah, and, awesome. uh, and we also got to see 693 first time decisions where people said, I want to follow Jesus. And that's not just the kids. We also go out into the communities. We build trust. We bring food and do what we can. Um, and, and as we go, we share the gospel. That's amazing. So you mentioned all the countries. You went through the list. Tell us what's in India. Yeah, so India, it was our second Hope Center. And that came, um, that came out a little bit out of, out of tragedy, part of our tragedy that we'll, we'll share. Um, but uh, Stephanie spent quite a bit of time in India before we even met. And so she had a heart for India. And so our kids have grown up hearing about the children there and praying for them. And, uh, and so that was something that was on our radar. We had, we had been in Costa Rica for about three years and been praying, okay, where's the next Hope Center? What does that look like? And then, um, then the Lord kind of opened the door through the loss of our son, Mason. Okay. And that, that, that Hope Center there is called Mason's Place. And so the purpose of today's podcast is for our people who listen, it's to hear from you guys, someone who's been through the fire, someone who's uh, been through trials of many kinds, and you've had your faith tested, and you've come out on the other side of a big test with the perspective that God is good and you're still faithful. So if you could first tell us the story with Mason, yeah. and then let's just, we'll have the conversation. Yeah. So Mason is our third son, and he was born with a lot of spunk, a lot of personality, a lot of light in our family. And when he was six years old, uh, nine years ago, he woke up one morning with a stomach ache. And it was a Saturday morning, and we had soccer, and we had all the crazy things a Saturday morning consists of. And it was like, oh, the stomach flu. How inconvenient. That was, you know, the first thought to have to deal with. But then his 
his stomach ache continued to get worse and it was just different. And so I said to Anthony, I, I think it could be appendicitis. I should probably take him to the hospital. But even then, I think both of us, like we, we just never have things like that happen. Like we don't have sick kids. We don't have tragedy. We don't have drama. So it was still a little, I don't know. I don't think we either, either of us really thought it was that big of a deal. Mm. So I left to take Mason to the hospital. Anthony left to take the other kids to soccer. And when we got to the hospital, they got him in right away. They said, yeah, it's appendicitis and it hadn't ruptured. So they said, we'll do surgery. It'll be fine. And, um, you know, you, you hear about how serious appendicitis is, but you don't actually hear of people dying from it, you know? And so I think it's like, oh, this is serious, but it's going to be fine. So he um, went back for surgery and the surgeon came out and said, everything went fine. It was like 17 minute surgery and they got the appendix out. And so then I went back to see him afterwards and he was awake and we were talking and, and then the nurses were kind of back and forth and I could kind of tell something wasn't quite right, but you know, you, you, I don't know. I didn't know what was going on. And then it just sort of began to escalate. And so they, someone said, we're going to transfer him to a hospital with a pediatric ICU. And so, um, but another, like the attending doctor said, you know, he's going to, I said, should my husband come? Cause he's with the kids. And uh, he said, I, you know, you can't tell the future, but everything's going to be fine. So when they say we're going to transfer in the pediatric ICU, you got a couple questions, but there's no alarm bells going on. No, off. I mean, he's awake. He's, I'm just thinking, oh, and, they, and you know, they're of course calm. They're like, he'll just get better care. So we we were in Southern California at the time. So we went to another hospital about 30 minutes away. And um, and so this happened, you know, this was like Saturday night. They transfer from there. We get there maybe 10 o'clock. And, and then as the night progresses, you know, they have me leave the room. I come back in and realize like things are not good. He just had um, declined very, very rapidly and they had him. Um, intubated and they had they had done all kinds of procedures and and it's very surreal you know this is not like this isn't anything you expect you to see your child going through so it was the middle of the night and I called Anthony and said I think you need to come and so he had to find someone to come over and stay with our kids in the middle of the night and um, by the time he got to the hospital which wasn't very far they had already initiated a transfer to um, LA Children's Hospital and it was all happening very fast. And so um, that transfer happened. I rode in the ambulance. Anthony rode, drove behind us. And, you know, it's very, it's a very surreal thing to be, you know, driving through LA in an ambulance with the lights going. And, you know, it's like, this isn't, this isn't my life. This is, this is other people's nightmare. This isn't mine. Mm. So when we got to uh, LA Children's Hospital, it wasn't very long before his heart stopped beating and they, um, had to start doing compressions. And and basically what happened is he'd gone into septic shock. So they were doing everything that they could. And we were in a room full of, you know, 15, 20 people uh, of nurses and doctors. And, and you know, it was just, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's still, even though it's been nine years, it's like it just happened. And it's still like it, it, it couldn't have possibly happened to watch this happen with your child. Yeah. And then, so, you know, about 30 minutes of chest compressions and uh, the team was amazing. We had a, a nurse sitting with us and she was kind of walking us through. And then at, uh, at one point, the, the lead doctor 
who, who was absolutely amazing. She came and sat with us. And really, for, for just for us, she said, you know, this is kind of where we're at. We're going to give it one more go, and then um, and, and we'll see what happens. And so they went through that last two minutes uh, of compressions and uh, checked for a pulse, and there was nothing there. And so they call time of death. And I just remember, you know, turning to Stephanie and, uh, and embracing her. And, uh, and then she stands up, walks into the middle of the room. And um, I don't know if I can kind of rewind a little bit, but sure. uh, so we've just lost our, our son. We had no, never been to LA Children's Hospital. It was about an hour, a little more than an hour from our house. But we had a dear friend who had gone through nursing school. She had, ex- we had been praying just that the Lord would place her where he wanted her. And she just had, a, she has a heart for the Lord, for ministry. And, and she had accepted a position at LA Children's Hospital about 30 days prior to this. Mm-hmm. And so she had asked us, hey, would you be praying for me as I care for kids, as I minister to families? But I also have this, this heart for the staff that I work with. It's a tough place to work. Yeah. And, uh, and so we said, you know, as a family, I guess we're going to pray for Miss Bree, and uh, and and Mason specifically. Uh, every night would would pray for Miss Bree in her hospital, and so here we are, thirty days later. Um, you know, worst thing you could imagine, and um, and my wife stands up in front of these doctors and nurses that we didn't know their names, hadn't seen their faces prior to you know an hour. Ago and uh, and she says before any of you leave, I want to take just a minute and thank you for the way that you've loved and cared for my son. We believe his days were ordained before any of them came to be, and you've been instruments in God's hands. And as I look at his body, I know he's not here; he's with Jesus. And so here she is in the worst possible moment as a mother proclaiming hope to these doctors and nurses that we've been praying for. And, uh, and by God's grace, we've been able to, to hear of the impact and the, uh, the head doctor in the room came in afterwards and um, shared his condolences and thanked us for our graciousness. And then just struggling for words, looking at Stephanie saying, I, I've never seen this. I've never seen, and he didn't really talk about it much, but it was, he hadn't seen hope like this in someone's face before. And then the, the doctor that was calling everything, she came in later and she's a believer and, uh, and just uh, like a, a gift from the Lord that sat with us um, for quite some time and, and shared encouraging things like, isn't it great to know that we have a father in heaven who knows what it is to lose a child. Hmm. And, uh, and so even in that moment, uh, God was evident. God was at work. Yeah, that your response is not the response that you're supposed to have, right? right. Or that anyone would expect to have. So how do you, like, did that feel almost supernatural? Or how did you get there? It was 100% supernatural. There's nothing in me that would actually think of, it's not like, okay, now this is what you're supposed to do in this situation. It was just the presence of the Lord was so overwhelming. Um, and it's it's like, I can't even describe it. When he died and they, you know, said, time of death, there was something, it, it, it was just like, I felt the Lord saying like, he's with me. And mm-hmm. I, I just, it's like, I could, I, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like, I saw him, I didn't see him, but that like, I sensed 
it. I don't something you feel. Something I felt, and it was just the presence of the Lord. It wasn't. Um, it was not me. It was the grace of God in that moment, and I think it was the grace of God just to have me say what I. That's not. That's not me. That's not like normal. You know, like my. I should be. You know, in the fetal position on the floor. Right. That right. would be 100%. where if you were to ask me, what would you do if your child died? Like, that's it. There's yeah. no like, well, let me logically go through this. That's just not the way. It's not normal. So it was really the Lord, truly. But, so you you know what's interesting, or not interesting, but just what stands out to me is, right, your faith up to that point had been stuff that you had been building. Like, you mm-hmm. don't just reach that moment and make it through a trial if you've not been constantly walking with the Lord, right? And so I, you guys are people of faith, mm-hmm. right? Um, because the the tested, like Jason talked about when we talked about this text, you want a faith that has been tested. Now, it never had been tested like this, but I mean, you guys weren't new believers, right? Like right. you're faithful people who are trying to walk with the Lord. And it, how did you feel like looking back now, how do you feel like the Lord was, preparing you guys for that moment. Because when we have the hindsight, we can begin to look back and go, oh, even just the story of the nurse. Like, wow, we were praying for these people that we actually didn't even know were going to be, it was us. We were the ones that they were going to be caring for. So like looking back now over these past nine years, I'm sure you've connected more dots like that. What is What has that been like as you've kind of connected the dots of faith to be like, man, if the Lord hadn't done this, this, or this, we maybe that moment would have been really different. I really believe the Lord prepared me for it, and I can see it. I could see it almost immediately. Mm. With diff, there was you know several different things in my life. There was a, you know a specific sermon I heard from our pastor at the time who had lost his daughter. There was different things I'd been reading, but I really ultimately think it was being still and quiet before the Lord and being in the Word. And mm. I went through a season. Um, than the year leading up to Mason dying where I had terrible insomnia. So I would just get up and go read my Bible. And I just spent so much time mm. in truth. And I think that uh, without that, that it would not have been the same experience for me. And mm. I believe the Lord prepared me, but I think the Lord, I, I'm, I'm thankful that by His grace, I allowed Him to prepare me because I think those moments can be really easy to miss. Yeah. Um, because there's so life is busy. There's so many distractions. There's so much noise that we really it really means being quiet. You know, and I had little kids at the time. I was it's like felt like being in the trenches of motherhood. And yeah. so I think the Lord knew like I gotta wake her up in the middle of the night because there's no other mm. time that there's not gonna be other there's, noise. You don't have other yeah, right. No. So time that was exist. yeah, and it was truly like it's it was a gift. And I remember like at one point saying like, I'm thankful for insomnia because I was sitting and reading Hmm. God's truth and just the things that he showed me, it was a very rich time. And I can see that that was preparation for what I was gonna go through. And a lot of that was understanding God's sovereignty and being willing and able to submit to that. And when everything's going really well, it's easy to say, oh, I trust in God's sovereignty here in our comfortable, you know, country with everything, you know. But um, I think being... being in a place where I really recognized and submitted to God's sovereignty before I had to go into mm. this season was really helpful. So because of His grace, I didn't struggle with the anger and I didn't struggle with, I was angry at death. Yeah. I wasn't angry at God. And yeah. I think that 
it's okay to recognize there's a lot of emotions with grief and it's okay to say, I'm not okay with this. I'm not okay with my son dying. Yeah. There's no, there's nothing about it that's okay. Right. And I can be angry that it happened, but that doesn't mean that that, I, I, that didn't carry over to anger at God. And I think that's by God's grace because yeah. it's, a, it's a horrible Because a lot of people, thing. it's these moments as a pastor. And Kenny, I know you, this is a lot of times when people do walk away and quit. Mm-hmm. It's right. these kinds of things that people throw the talent and go, there's not, I can't do it. There's no way. Well, how could I follow and trust a God who would do that? So many people, it's, it's around this idea of suffering that their faith is kind of punted. And my humanness gets that, right? Yeah. Like I, I understand, you know what I mean? And so mm-hmm. um, there, and sometimes it's the cliche of, you, well, can't be mad. And it's like, no, I'm mad. And God hates death too. God doesn't want this as much as I don't want this. And I know right. that because he sent Jesus, you know, like, so those are the pieces of it that you do find the comfort and hope. What about you, Anthony? How did you, how did you notice God yeah. had been doing some work in you too before this? Yeah. And I think Stephanie alluded to it. Uh, our pastor going through his daughter had cancer and and he really allowed us as a church family to walk that with him. And, mm-hmm. and so to be able to see him navigate that, he and his wife, uh, was really helpful. Obviously, we didn't know when we were watching him that that we were we were up next. Yeah. Uh, but the other piece was community. Like we had a rich, rich community um, that we we did life with. We mm-hmm. did this journey of with Jesus, and you know, just it was only five days before I was part of a a men's Bible study. We would meet on Wednesdays, and uh, and we were at the time going through Colossians. And so we would be in the word and then we'd get together in a small little group and pray for each other and share the things that God was doing and teaching us and, and confess sin. And, and so that morning, I remember as we went through Colossians, um, sharing with my group that um, God had been convicting me of, I, of me finding greater joy and satisfaction in his blessings over him. And, uh, and so I shared that with them. We prayed about it. And, and just, it was my heart in that moment, I want to be fully satisfied in Jesus. And, uh, and so you fast forward, you know, it was actually, it was just under a week. So we lose our son five days later and there's the, the loneliness, the, the ache, um, the, the confusion, all these different things that you feel. And yet in the midst of it, God's love was so overwhelming. And, uh, and he expressed that in many ways. There was, we just knew he was with us from the time we were in the, ho- the hospital room and the, the drive home and um, community coming around us, loving us. Um, but I also remember talking on the phone just days later with somebody and, and sharing um, things that like, I didn't think I ever would feel in the midst of grief. And, and it was this overwhelmingness of God's presence and his love and, and even his kindness. And, and I think probably f- maybe for the first time ever, I was fully satisfied in Jesus alone. And if everything else was taken away from me, I knew Jesus was enough. Man, when, he, when you, both of you share this, uh, and the question was about how did you see God preparing you or God at work? And you made the comment, it's easy to miss. And what you just described are the ho-hum, ordinary things of the Christian life. <laughs> We're going to church, right? And, and a sermon that, the, that your pastor who was dealing with this with his own daughter, right? You never think one sermon never changes anyone's life, mm-hmm. right? Well, it sounds like this at least. And then one sermon made a huge difference. And then 
it was someone else's nightmare, right? That was, he was going through that and you could empathize and be, but you were there for that. And then you described uh, the community of people and the, and a men's group and just, we don't realize that those are the things that prepare us for the trials that will come or maybe they don't come. Maybe we miss, I don't know, but just the fact that it's nothing spectacular. It's, I always, my wife and I always say that the good life has lived in the mundane, yep. you know, and then I guess when the testing comes, what the work you were doing, the normal thing that I do in my boring Christian life was the foundation that you can thrive now, despite great tragedy, despite great loss, the work you're doing, uh, it's remarkable and yet so ordinary. Mm-hmm. Which is the reminder there's not, that this is what everybody can do. Like we all can be silent and still before the Lord. We all can have a group of guys who are praying with us. Like the thing that you, like you said, the things that you all were doing weren't only what super Christians can do. Right. Like this is actually what the, like the bare minimum of what we're called to do in a way, like everybody can do this so that when we all reach these trials, because they're going to come, and they're just differing and varying. We we all can come on the other side with this pure joy aspect, right? Um, and so, so that gives me a question. Yeah, this pure joy aspect. And maybe you've already answered the question in what you described. But how have you come out on the other side of this with joy? Uh, and still, Jesus, God is good. I'm following <laughs> Jesus, yeah. right? Like how how are you still there? I think there's uh, multiple components to that. I think one of the things for me is that early on, I was able to see God's kindness in such a beautiful way. And I I was able to see His redemption in so much of what was happening. And it was just a few nights uh, after He died, I couldn't sleep. And I went out and started reading my Bible and I was reading Psalms because it's, you know, the book of comfort. And uh, I felt the Lord telling me to turn to John and so I turn to John and I start reading about the word becoming flesh and thinking this really doesn't seem relevant to grief, but I'm just going to keep reading because that's what the Lord told me to do. God, do you really know what you're talking about? <laughs> I mean, it's good, but it just didn't feel relevant at the time. But then I got to John um, one forty, and I knew why the Lord had called me to the book of John. And it's about uh, the calling of the first disciples. And when we had named Mason, we couldn't decide on a middle name. And uh, Anthony, we always struggled with coming up with names, especially <laughs> we well, had so many four, kids. Yeah, four boys. Yeah. yeah, really. Yeah, Amen. a lot of boys. A lot Amen. Of boys. So we decided. Anthony said, "Why don't we na- make his middle name Andrew? Because um, he's known as the disciple who brings people to Jesus." Mm. And so um, I got to that part in my Bible where it says, "You know, when uh, the first thing that Andrew did after experiencing Jesus is he went and got his brother and said to him, we found the Messiah and he brought him to Jesus. And I felt in that moment, the Lord saying, I'm going to do this with Mason. I'm going to do this with his life. I'm going to use his life to bring people to me. And there was a reminder of that moment where we named him, you know, back when you, when you're pregnant and you think everything's going to be great. You know, Mm -hmm. you don't picture this being your story, but the Lord knew that was our story. And the Lord gave us that name as a promise and a reminder. I'm going to use his life to bring people to him. And so there is the redemptive part of the story helps with the pain to remember that the Lord's writing something bigger. 
And when I kept reading through John, and then I started searching everywhere in the Bible that Andrew's mentioned, you know, like clinging to as many promises as I can, because the Lord's kind and, and good, but grief is awful. It was a horrible, horrible thing. So I don't mean to minimize that no, in any means. Not. But when I'm reading through these things, I get to the feeding of the 5,000, and it was Andrew who brought the boy with the lunch to Jesus. And, you know, just the picture of like bringing the little amount that you have to Jesus, and at the end, Jesus says, pick up all the leftovers, let nothing be wasted. And that picture of the Lord saying, again, I'm not going to waste anything. I'm not going to waste the tears. I'm not going to waste mm. the pain and the grief and the loss. And so I think that's one component of his of the goodness of God of to say, hey, this is awful, but I'm doing something beautiful with it. You know, so we have so many stories of people sharing with us how his story has changed them and brought them to experience Jesus. And we have Mason's Place and these orphans whose lives have been changed and girls who've been rescued out of horrible things. And the redemption of that story is, it, it, it's just another part of the hope that we have. And maybe tell us a little bit about Mason's Place, Anthony. I remember the first time I met you and then I heard this story and then I heard about Mason's Place and I was like, I was blown away. I was like, Absolutely. That's, of course, what it should be called, yeah. right? Like, just such a powerful thing. If I can, before I get to Mason's place, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, just me going through grief. Yeah, absolutely. And, oh, right and, Definitely. and how God, yes. God was good. Yeah. And, uh, and so I, I think one of the things that I, I quickly, um, a place I got to was there was this humbling that took place that, who am I that God would choose to write our story the way he did and walk with us through this, this valley in a way that I didn't know him before? And I don't know that I ever could have come to know the Lord the way that I do now apart from suffering. And I had lived, you know, a comfortable life. And I remember even reading through suffering, you know, through, through scripture and coming up with these suffering things. And I'm like, I've lived a really good, easy life. And, and there's also, it was kind of almost like this question in the back of my mind, like, you know, okay, is my faith real? Because I haven't mm. experienced too much mm. suffering. And, and then you go through it, you don't see it coming, you go through it. And, and then just this intimacy with the Lord, understanding his kindness and presence in a way that I, I never would have known apart from suffering. And so it, uh, I look at it and say, who am I that God would choose to walk through suffering with me the way that he has. So it is, uh, I, I'm not raising my hand for suffering, but I can say God has been so good to me through this, this journey. Mm. Um, and as far as Mason's place, we had, you know, we had been praying about, hey, what's next? Um, and two other guys that we started Hope Partners with, one of them had spent quite a bit of time in India and, uh, and it was just on his heart. And so, the two of them talked and came to us and said, hey, we, uh, we believe God's opening the door for us to have our next Hope Center in India. And, uh, and we wanted to ask if you would be okay with us naming it after Mason and, uh, and calling it Mason's Place. And, uh, and yeah. so, yeah, That's... I mean, what a, a, a tribute. And, and it's a neat story. Mason, uh, because he grew up hearing about children in India, he, uh, I remember I had taken him out. This was in December. We lost him in, in September. So this was this December before. And uh, I try to take each of my kids out and set goals for the new year. And what is it the Lord's calling you? What's some adventures you want to go on and things you want to learn? And so 
he uh, he had a mohawk, and so he wanted to grow a taller mohawk. So it was going to be a five foot tall mohawk. Yeah, yeah. yeah he wanted to uh, learn to play the guitar. He he just he loved people. He loved connecting with people, whether they were three year old or thirty year old, sixty year old. Like they, he just it was he had a unique ability as a five and six year old to connect with people, and uh, and the mohawk kind of helped people see him, and so he. At one point, Stephanie said, hey, we want to cut it. And he's like, no, people see me. I, I like this. <laughs> um, but well, I'm his, the youngest, so this now I can stand out yeah. in the crowd. And he so, said, I like that people like me. That was his, hmm. that yeah. kind of encapsulated him. But also one of his goals was like, he said, hey, dad, I want to fly in a plane to India. And, and he had never flown in a plane, so I got the plane piece flying. Hmm. But uh, I said, India, that's, that's a big one, bud. We'll, we'll go ahead and write it down. And we'll see what the Lord does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so uh, he, he obviously didn't get to fly on that plane, but just, just uh, a year and a half later, um, less than a year and a half later, January of 2016, we lost him in 14. I flew um, on that, that plane ride to India and, and we got to establish Mason's Place. That's remarkable. Mm. And I think he had this remarkable ability to connect with people and what you've shared, he still is. Like that story that you blog about, Stephanie, and for the benefit of all of you listening, letnothingbewasted.com is the address of her blog. Uh, and it's, it's uh, you're a remarkable storyteller. You keep it succinct, yet bring us into the depths of, uh, of introspection based on what you've experienced. And so Mason's story is being told and it's, its reach is who knows what its reach is, you know, with obviously internet global, but then from person to person. Uh, so lots of good since then has come from this. Uh, children being rescued, your own faith, like excellent. And then I'm reading your blog and I'm going to quote to you some of your, your own writing. This is from a blog post from the fall of 23. It says, here's your line. I think there is a delusional and in parentheses, perhaps hopeful with a question mark, perspective you have after you've gone through great tragedy. It's something along the lines of, I've had my major personal catastrophe, no more. Which that to me, um, yeah, of course, who doesn't think that way? And as the blog continues, says, after you bury a child, you want to believe you now walk around in a bubble of immunity. Surely I've paid my dues, proved my faith, now the Lord will protect me. Well, this side of eternity doesn't work that way. You want to tell us the next chapter? So in August of this year, uh, Anthony uh, was diagnosed with colon cancer, and that was very unexpected. He had no symptoms. He just did the standard, I'm 50 years old, it's time to... <laughs> Get the things done. I'm Public half of a century old. It's time to <laughs> yeah. prod me. Thank, thank you for letting everybody know that. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, I'm right there with you, brother. So, uh, yeah, we, he went in for it was just standard procedure. That's what you think it's going to be. And then they called me back afterwards, which is not a good sign when everyone else is being released to go get the car. They're calling me back. And, and he said, I, I wish I had better news. And that sort of started the whole process of now we're in the cancer journey. Yeah, so uh, I wasn't expecting that. You know, I, I've been healthy, never had any health issues. 
And uh, yeah, colonoscopy, I wasn't super excited about it. I'm like, yeah, we'll get this knocked out and, and move on. And so it was a, a surprise to both of us. And, uh, um, and then you, you, know, you, you do surgery and get to go through the joys of, of having your gut opened up. And they took out uh, seven inches of my colon and you know, a bunch of other stuff in there. And, and then they, uh, yeah, let me know that you know, we're looking at stage three and that the cancer had spread. Fortunately, it hadn't gone to any other organs, uh, but had spread enough throughout lymph nodes that we need to get fairly aggressive with treatment. And, and then we start chemo. Um, and, uh, and so that's, that's a whole nother journey in and of itself going through that, which right now we're looking at about six months of treatments. I go in every three weeks uh, for an infusion. And then I've got chemo pills that I get to take for two weeks following that. And you're in the middle of that now. Middle of that right now, yeah. So we uh, we had treatment number three, and I'm just about ready for treatment number four. And so you go in for your routine, right? Here I am. You get this news, and how does that hit you in that moment? Like, is, is it? All, I'm wondering, would my, hey, I trust God, He's good. Does that get? Oh, I thought He was good, and now I'm in the fire again. Like. Tell me about that moment and that experience, and did you have to wrestle to be where you are today? Yeah, I, uh, I, I think. Well, for first of all, I am one of those um, optimists, and 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 one of the things that my wife pointed out while we were spending two years on the road, um, traveling all across the country, and towing a seventeen thousand pound. 43-foot trailer with, you know, six of us in a truck. It was crazy. I, I am confident, but not certain of most things. And so <laughs> that's just the way that I go through life, whether it's directions or campground or whatever. It's like, ah, it's going to be good. I'm confident this is, this is the right way. I'm not 100% certain, but close enough. <laughs> close enough to go. And, oh, so, uh, and so I get this diagnosis and, and I'm like, okay. Uh, I, I had a good friend that just had the same diagnosis. He went through very similar treatment. And I'm like, all right, it'll plug away, knock this out in six months. It will be in my rearview mirror. And I remember even Ken telling you um, up at Camp Hatchet this, uh, this past year that, uh, yeah, I, I was going to, in fact, it was right after, it was the couple days after Camp Hatchet, I went and had surgery. And, and I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll get through this and it's no big deal. I remember standing around the fire and you telling me that. Which, let me add in here a shameless plug for Camp Hatchet 2024. Any of you <laughs> fathers, basically first grade through sixth grade, it's at the end of November, uh, September. Well, details forthcoming. It was a great event. <laughs> yes, Camp Hatchet is great. My boys love it. So yeah, I think for me, I, I, just, I just minimize and everything's going to be fine. My wife's not quite that same way, which yeah. is probably a good thing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I said next time around, I want to be that one because there's a lot less, a lot less stress when you don't think about it. But I think for me, I think going through what we've gone through and living that, you know, it's not like, oh, that happened nine years ago. That's an ongoing reality that our son is gone. So I feel like that is a truth I live daily, the trusting in the sovereignty of God and God's goodness through everything. And so I feel like when I didn't have you know, a crisis of faith when he had his diagnosis obviously was not welcome news. Um, and, you know, there's scary things about it, absolutely. And, you know, my mind swirls and goes to all the things because someone's has to, 
right? <laughs> Someone has to think about everything. But I think it's it's also being a mom in the midst of that. And it's being a wife, like what does he need? And and then it's being a mom and what do my kids need? And how's everyone processing? And then what has to happen next? And what are the logistics? And it's just a lot to for your mind to juggle. Because the rest of life doesn't go away. There's still basketball or soccer or homework or this or that. It's right. still, you've got to navigate a home with three children under the roof because mm-hmm. one's off the college. One's off the college. You got to yeah. pay for that. Yep. So, yeah. yeah. So, uh, speaking of kids, that is a great question. I know we do have some listeners with kids and I'm curious too. How do you all balance just all of this with, with your kiddos? Because, I mean, obviously I know like your oldest son, Bennett, and he's a rock star. Like he's in the tech booth and he volunteers with Nate. And this kid is just a different kind of 16, 17. He's just different. Like it's just something about him and because, you know, they now have experienced trials where you hadn't, right? So how have, how have you as a parent helped them navigate and walk through this too? Because um, that's such an important piece, right? Um, because I, I just think of my own kids and my own boys and, man, like, how do I get them to see that God is still good? Because I can believe that. I can see that. I can trust in that knowing that. How do you, have you all done that with your kids? And now this new season that you're in, a more difficulty, like how are you navigating those conversations with them? I feel like it's, when Mason died, it was like, be as honest as possible with my kids as often as I could. Yeah. And um, that doesn't mean that they hear the depths of all of my emotions, but like I didn't hide my tears. Yeah. I didn't hide my sadness. And I encouraged them to be honest about what they were struggling with. And when they had their moments of question and doubt. Like I just, I let them have it. And then I would try throughout the day-to-day, like speaking truth and let's, we need to be in the word and we need to be speaking about truth. And and so I try to just be as honest as possible with them. And I feel like we, I've always told them when you have questions, you can ask them because there are certain things like they don't probably care about all of the details of chemo and cancer and all that, but I feel like I don't want to shelter them from it because yeah. I feel like it's an important opportunity. It's a learning opportunity for them. Yeah. And and our older two very much remember when Mason died. That was, That's a very vivid memory. And I feel like they were able to learn a lot and grow through that. Yeah. And I think that's shaped them into who they are today. Yeah. And they're, they're great kids. I think that trial, when our kids have to go through hard things, they can it can be a very valuable learning opportunities. So for us, I feel like it's a lot of prayer, first and foremost. That That's my first answer. A lot of prayer. Prayer together as a family. We pray every night together and we pray for healing. But I've also tried to communicate to the kids, like our faith is in the healer, not in the healing. Mm-hmm. So you might not always get the answer you want on this earth, but that does not change the fact that God is sovereign and good. So we just try to speak that truth as yeah. often as we can to them. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that I would add too much. I, I feel like uh, my wife does an amazing job of not only um, nurturing their hearts, but she, I think probably a big piece of it is the way that she prays for the kids and she understands where their hearts are at. And so it's been, um, yeah, it's been amazing to get to parent with with my wife and to see the way um, like she carries a heavy load um, as she carries their hearts and cares for them and brings me into that and, and insight and, and ways to be praying and, and all that's going on. But uh, 
yeah, it's like you want to shelter your kids from suffering. Yeah. You know, you want to do everything you can. And yet, um, my, my belief and hope and prayer is that they're better for it. Yeah. Because you all have said that, like that's been the overwhelming, you know, like your faith is now stronger and sure. You're more confident because of the suffering. Right. And it's that weird moment of like, man, I don't wish that, especially on my kids, but even in my own story and can't through your story, like who I am is because of that suffering. Like by no means do I want that on anyone, but like, I, I don't think I'd be who I am and I wouldn't be where I am. I wouldn't have the empathy for people to be able to pastor in the way, unless God had done all of these things really early on, even in my own journey. And so, but it's a balance as a parent. You're like, ah, I don't want my kid to go through that. I don't want them to experience something like that. But I know, and if they don't, like life is coming when they get older. And so like the ability to help them navigate it now, like again, um, is such an important thing. And so again, I just know as a parent, there's there's so many different emotions when we're dealing with our own, but then trying to take care of our kids as well. And so just a part that I think is real valuable just to hear from a family who's done it and now again, doing it again. What I think I hearing with your parenting and your kids is eternity is in full view because of what you've experienced. Mm. And that's hard for a kid to grasp. It's hard for an adult to grasp. And here they saw the fruit of the ho-hum Christian life proved to be like this rock, right? I think of the, the wise and foolish builders, right? So here you're, the storm came, the winds blew and beat and it raged against the house. And the house is still standing because, and there, you guys are a living example and testimony to your children in that, and that will pay dividends for their for their life uh, tremendously. Uh, we're gonna we're nearing the end, I think. But I, before we wrap this up, I want to see: Do you guys have any last words or anything left unsaid that you want to be said? Yeah, I think for me, the um, one thing I would add was or is that. Um, Suffering has brought this eagerness for Christ's return. It's not that I, I, I'm grateful for every day that the gospel get, gets to go out. Um, and so there's an aspect where I, I don't want him to return in, so that there's more time for people to, to, to be one to him. But there's also, there's an eagerness that I have to be with Jesus that I didn't have before. Mm. When we lost Mason, one of the books that we, we read um, is Heaven by Randy Alcorn. And it, it paints this picture um, of what heaven might be like. And it is, I think that was a big piece of, of longing for heaven. I think that was a big piece in, in not only the early church, but you know, even church hundreds of years ago, they longed for heaven in a way that I don't think the church today longs for it. Mm. And, uh, and so that's been a big piece. And um, yeah, and just this, eagerness, like because I've walked and I've felt the presence of the Lord, like I, I, I long for his return so that I can actually be with him in a way that I'd never had prior to suffering. Yeah. And I was just going to add to what Anthony was saying. I believe that one of the greatest tactics of the enemy to breed passivity and apathy in believers is to take away our interest in and our desire for heaven 
And um, I think so many of us don't long for eternity and we don't know enough about how amazing heaven is. So instead we have this limited view on the, the fact that it's gonna be boring or something. I think that that was me before Mason died without realizing it. I don't think I would verbalize it that way, but being able to compare my perspectives, I'm able to see that. I don't think our human minds can fully know that, but the Bible gives us enough to know that it's better than we can imagine. So along with reading heaven, which really helped, I read uh, the Chronicles of Narnia to my kids. Mm. We spent a lot of, I homeschool. So after Mason died, there was just a lot of like, we're just gonna read today because you know we can barely like get out of bed. We're just gonna read books. And that was like, that year was a lot of reading books. So I read the Chronicles of Narnia and I feel like C.S. Lewis paints eternity with these beautiful strokes of hope and excitement and, and promise. And I would like read these to my kids and then like be bawling, like this is what Mason's experiencing, which I'm sure was, you know, super comfortable for them. But that's <laughs> that's the reality. That's just as the way yeah. it was. And um, I just think like, if we as Christians can grasp that, that, that heaven is full of these like, these colors and experiences and fragrances and emotions that are beyond our comprehension, then like we can live with a lot more intention and a lot more purpose. And so that's what losing a child did for me. Mm. You know, my daughter's away at college in Virginia and I took her there. So I've seen the campus. And so when she calls me or she's telling me stories, I have to like picture where she is and picture her dorm room and picture these things. And, and, and that's like what I have to do as a mom. And when Mason left and went to heaven, it was like, I can't, I can't picture where he is. I, I, know he, I know it's good. I didn't doubt that, but it was just, there was something so kind of unknown to me about it. And yeah. so I think that the reality is like now before Mason died, if you would have asked me, what's your biggest fear? I would have said losing a child. But now I can say from everything I've been through, my biggest fear is losing a child for all eternity. And so that perspective is what drives me now. That's my focus is that, that my children are, they are in heaven and that as many other people as possible that we take with us. But I feel like that's the gift that came in the midst of grief, in the midst of loss, in the midst of all that. And that filter covers everything like cancer and it covers loss and it covers so much of life that that doesn't mean that it's, easy and that it's good. And I don't say, oh, yay, this is great. I'm glad it worked out this way. But because this is the way that it is, God is good and heaven is real. And it just, this is so temporary. And I think that's what these experiences tell me when cancer comes. It's like, well, okay, this is another temporary right. pain on yeah. the road to eternity. I love that Narnia quote that no one gets to Narnia the same way twice, mm -hmm. right? God gives us these new glimpses of heaven too. Right? Like you got it in that way and then you go through something else, another trial, and you get a new glimpse of a new aspect and character of God. You get to experience the presence of God. And now walking through this new thing, you're going to experience a new way of God, right? And we have all these little moments. But that was the thing that always jumped out to me in the Chronicles of Narnia is that idea and how grateful I am when I can go, oh, man, God, just let me see a little glimpse into heaven in this way. I may never, I'll never get to see it that way again, this side of earth, but, oh man, I'm looking forward to the next glimpse in, um, and to know that sometimes the glimpse comes from a really difficult time, right? And, but just finding that goodness in that, right? Yeah. So just a, I read that too in a really weird season of life and the same hope of like this picture of, oh God, I, 
man, I can't wait, right? This, that idea of the lion, are you safe? No, but I'm good. Yeah. Right? Just those Amen. pictures are just so good, right? And again, we need that. We need somebody to paint the bigger picture. And that's what your all story's done for me and can hopefully for everybody listening is it's painting a new picture of a God in a, a new way to, because somebody's listening probably going, man, I, I don't know if I can make it through. And I, I don't know if any of us know if we can. And I, we just, we end up because supernaturally the spirit of God carries us through that. And then we get to look back nine years later. And again, they're right, man. They all tell that story and it feels just as real like it happened yesterday. Like we're in this room yeah. and I feel like the like first time I heard it and hearing it again now the second time, it's still just as real and powerful. But what I, I just, this overwhelming sense of hope and goodness that comes from your all's heart, like it's in there deep and it just spews out. So, so man, I'm grateful. I'm so grateful that you guys are willing to share this story for, for me and the encouragement that it gives me. And um, I'm sure Kim feels the same way and hopefully everybody else does too. Yeah. I want to thank you guys for being willing to do this. And uh, I'm so appreciate your faithfulness through this, uh, through these last nine years. And you've carried this burden and other people have helped, right? You mentioned community. And then you sharing this story uh, is for the benefit of all who will listen, right? It's getting, we get a little bit of a glimpse of the perspective that you've gained, this eternal perspective. Uh, so I really appreciate you doing this. And this will be a little different than other endings we've had, but what I'm asking Stephanie to do here is to read from one of her blog posts entitled The Coming of Winter. And for those of you listening, I can't implore you enough, let nothingbewasted.com. Uh, and then Stephanie will read this and we're done. So thank you all for listening. But alas, we don't get to pick out our lives of ease. So I guess the thing is about this current trial, it doesn't surprise me. I've learned life is hard and sad and suffering is unavoidable, really. But also the Lord's goodness never wavers. He reached down and pulled me up and held me in the strength of his arms and showed me that nothing is all right on this earth. And that is okay because everything is right in eternity. And that is the hope I hold on to. Not a flimsy thread deceiving me that this life will be okay, but that everything will be right in the life to come. This is the hope I cling to now. Not healing this side of heaven, although that would be super, Lord, but everything is redeemed. My hope is in greater things. Not that the trial will end, but that in the midst of the trial, the presence of the Lord is such a sweet essence of perfection. I don't need to long for any other thing. I have experienced God the most, not in the warmth of carefree summer days, but in the howl of winter's darkness. And that experience has taught me that ultimately there is nowhere I would rather be than in His presence. So if He is found at the oncologist and the chemo treatments, in the helplessness and the weariness, in the unknowns and the suffering, then I don't want to be anywhere else. Because I know deep down inside that with Him, all is well. Amen.